Hello and welcome to The Leap of Faith. On the programme this evening, as the Synod of Bishops for the Amazon continues into its third week, we'll hear from Pope Francis' biographer on the efforts of the Vatican to listen and respond to the needs of the Amazonian nations of South America. We'll also talk with Lisa Sharon Harper, who's been named as one of the 50 most powerful women religious leaders and nominated as one of the seven leaders to follow in 2017. Lisa's book, The Very Good Gospel, has been described as life-changing and she's travelled to Ireland to address the Rubicon Conference tomorrow in Dublin. She'll be sharing thoughts on how her faith has been informed by her African-American heritage. But first, Wednesday last was Yom Kippur, the Jewish Day of Atonement, one of the most important dates in the Jewish calendar. In Halle, in Germany, two people lost their lives when a 27-year-old German citizen attempted a mass shooting at a synagogue in the city, which he streamed live on the internet. In advance of the Sabbath, I've been speaking with Rabbi Dame Julia Neuberger, who's a crossbench peer, social commentator and writer. She's senior rabbi at the West London Synagogue and one of the first two female rabbis in the UK. I began by asking her for her reaction and thoughts about the 27-year-old perpetrator who's confessed to the attack and admitted a far-right anti-Semitic motive. Well, I just think it's desperate. I think there is a real rise of anti-Semitism in Germany. I mean, the German authorities, the German government's absolutely appalled. I mean, they have behaved, I think, on the whole, absolutely magnificently. You know, Germany, unlike most other countries uh, that were involved in the Holocaust, Germany has done its absolute utmost to educate and everything else. However, it's quite clear that there's a real strand of anti-Semitic thought growing on the far right, that the far right itself is growing, that the strong anti-immigrant feeling as well, as we also know from the uh, million um, uh, immigrants, uh, mainly the refugees that Angela Merkel brought in. So how does a 27-year-old get ideas like that? Well, a 27-year-old who's probably able to be very strongly influenced looks at some of the history of, if you like, fascist thought in Germany, sees it as attractive, wants people to blame for things that have gone wrong probably in his life or his community's life. And there you go. It's the oldest hatred and it's rearing its ugly head around Europe all over again. But it's the creating of another. In other words, that once the person is perceived as being different, that is sufficient in order to hate them. It's been a history in, if you like, the history of the human race that people have picked on people who are different from them. So whether it's that somebody with disabilities or whether it's somebody of a different colour or different ethnicity or different faith, you only have to look at the island of Ireland to look at, you know, I, I regard Christianity as the same faith, but some of the feelings between Catholics and Protestants haven't been great either. We are quite good at hating each other, particularly when we see somebody as being a bit different from us. There's nothing new in that. What is surprising and very distressing is that anti-Semitism, if you like, having come to its, what you would have thought it, its apogee, the, 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 you know, the last uh, blast of it you could imagine with the Holocaust with six million Jews being murdered, um, is raising its ugly head again. And indeed, part of that is in Holocaust denial. It never happened, even though we have the evidence that it did. What do you think will happen in terms of getting the general population to once again recognise that anti-Semitic thought is not acceptable at all? I, 
I think it is really hard to know what to do because I wouldn't have expected it to come about again. And, and you know, I had a book, uh, I wrote a book on anti-Semitism that was published just a couple of months ago called Anti-Semitism, What It Is, What It Isn't and Why It Matters. And I wrote it because I was so angry, really, surprised and angry at what was happening. What can we do? We can educate, but we've been trying to educate. We can condemn And I do think political leaders and and church leaders and Muslim leaders condemning. I mean, there's been a wonderful outburst of support for the Jewish community from parts of the Muslim community here in the UK uh, after an actually failed attack in Germany, but it did Mm. kill two people. But um, that's been really heartwarming. But we need all religious leaders, all political leaders, all teachers. We need everybody to be out there saying, this isn't on, it's not acceptable. If we look at Yom Kippur and, and the practice of people in the Jewish faith of, of atonement, can, can you set that in, in context for me about how important it is in the Jewish faith? It's extraordinarily important and it's very, very different from how Christians on the whole think about atoning and forgiveness because the first thing is not going to synagogue and asking God's forgiveness for one's sins. The first thing is going to people you have offended during the course of the year, who you've done wrong to during the course of the year, and trying to put things right with them. So one of the things is it's not just the Day of Atonement, it's the season of repentance where you actually try and make good what you've done wrong insofar as you can. And then on the Day of Atonement itself, day goes from... Uh, nightfall to nightfall. So you spend the evening called Kol Nidre and the whole day of Yom Kippur in synagogue, praying, everybody fasting, you know, singing, but also just contemplating what what you've done over the last year and what you want to do better in the future. But it's the that's the culmination of either for some people where they say 10 days from the Jewish New Year to the Day of Atonement, and a lot of people use the whole month uh, immediately before uh, Yom Kippur to, to, to put things right in so far as they can. For us, from this side of the water, watching what's been happening in the UK for the last three years in relation to Brexit, there seems to be now a, a space for people to be more angry, to be more vociferous, in, in other words, to express their anger. Um, how's, how's that going to be fixed or can it be fixed? Well, I think it can be fixed. The problem about it is how long will it take? And I completely agree that since the Brexit vote, that it's been more acceptable to be angry and it's been more acceptable to really have a go at what you perceive as the other side. It's the other again. And um, yes, it's got much nastier. It's really become very unpleasant. And we saw absolutely appalling scenes in the House of Commons not very long ago. And it, yes... You in Ireland, where I spend some of my time very happily, you in Ireland seem to have a more peaceful way of dealing with things at the moment, and uh, I just look with envy. I'm leading back to the idea that ultimately there may be a a broader day of atonement required in the UK than simply just in the Jewish faith. That is quite possibly so, but the thing I think first that has to happen in in the UK is before you can do that, before you can even get to that point, you have to get to the recognition that something has gone wrong and that you've done something wrong. And at the moment, people won't absolutely accept that maybe this name-calling and cat-calling and awful behaviour in the House of Commons, the use of the wrong kind of language. I mean, Boris Johnson himself talking about surrender. I mean, what kind of language is this? This is ridiculous. Um, So you have to recognise that there's something wrong before you can atone.
We have the benefit of your political insight, but I want to go back now to your insight as a rabbi. And in the days prior to the Day of Atonement, what would you as a rabbi be guiding, you know, your congregation towards? Is there a, a, an actual thing that somebody has to do other than simply think? Uh, you don't just think. I mean, you know, Jews, we're very practical people. <laughs> no, if you feel you've offended somebody, you need to go and find them and apologize and make amends if you can. I mean, if you've you know, taken something from them you shouldn't have done, you've got to give it back. Or if you've got rid of it, then give them the financial value. Or if you just, I think, you know, in family, we do upset each other. I mean, we don't necessarily do it intentionally, but we do. And it's a very good time for saying to other members of the family, look, I'm really sorry if I got that wrong. How does it feel afterwards? Is it, is it as cleansing as it sounds? Cleansing and exhausting. <laughs> <laughs> I'm completely knackered the day after. I take it that you mean you've had some atonement to do yourself then? We all do. Is there anybody who hasn't done something ghastly over the past year? My silence is probably the answer that, that, yeah, that includes me. I'm not going to ask you too much about that, but I can only say that I think everybody has done things that they very much regret, and sometimes they go through your head, and sometimes you have to think quite hard about what they were. Rabbi Jill Norberger, thank you for joining us on The Leap of Faith. Thank you. Well, tomorrow in Dublin, in the Sugar Club, the Rubicon 2019 conference will be taking place. It's described as a conversation for those eager to explore how God's intention is showing up in the lives of their peers and the cultural projects they create. The organisers say they aren't rewriting orthodox theology, but want to hear from a variety of speakers to engage in challenging conversations. One of those speakers tomorrow is African-American Lisa Sharon Harper. Acknowledged as one of the 50 most powerful women religious leaders, Lisa is the author of The Very Good Gospel and president of Freedom Road, a consulting group that she founded to train religious leaders on participating in social action. I met Lisa earlier today and asked her why she accepted the invitation to speak at Rubicon this year. Well, thanks so much for asking. It was I was actually very honored to be asked to speak at Rubicon. Several of my friends have spoken in the past, but I believe that Rubicon is the kind of conference that begins to ask the harder questions, the ones that you don't ask in polite society, and um, the kinds of questions that actually have potential to help change the world and make the world a more just place. So I want to be a part of that. Now, people tend to walk on eggshells when they talk about faith or they talk about belief. What eggshells are you going to step on? <laughs> well, you know, it's funny because we, we, we do step on eggshells when we talk about faith. But faith is one of those things that every single human being struggles with. We all lay in bed at night and look up at the ceiling and wonder... We wonder what is beyond what we can see. We feel, we, we feel the presence of our relatives who have already passed at times. And we think to ourselves, there must be something more. Well, in the same way, we look around at our world, especially our divided world right now, and we are convinced that something is not as it should be. And in particular, the issues of human hierarchy that have begun to surface again in very, very hard form, particularly in the United States in the form of white nationalism. And so what we're going to be talking about um, at Rubicon is the very heart of both of those things, the heart of the good news of the gospel and how it intersects with the issues that we are facing right now, particularly around human hierarchy, race, gender, and all the rest. Now, the use of the Bible can be used for good, it can be used for bad, but you particularly went back and looked at the books of Genesis. Mm -hmm. What what excited you about that? Well, I mean, I think that when... When I was, I went on a pilgrimage about 16 years ago, and that pilgrimage 
really cast me into 16 years of wrestling with the scripture because the pilgrimage took me through 10 states in the south of the United States, the southern United States, and through two major stories, the story of the Cherokee removal called the Cherokee Trail of Tears and the story of the African experience on American soil from slavery through civil rights. And my family experienced both of those stories, so it was very personal. And I got to the end of that summer, four weeks on the road, I got to the end of the summer and asked a critical question. What does the good news of Jesus have to say to this? What is the message? What is the good news to my third great grandmother, who was the last adult enslaved woman in our family? How could I go up to her and share with her what I thought the message of the good news was? God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. (laughs) She was enslaved. Hello, somebody, right? Um, She had 17 children, likely because she was what they called a breeder. It was her job on the plantation to breed money for her master. And yes. And so I asked myself, could I go up to her and tell her God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, but you are sinful and therefore separated from God? But Jesus died for your sin. And all you need to do is pray this little prayer and you get to go to heaven. Would she receive that as good news? And sadly, very sadly, I had to face the reality that the answer was no, that she would not jump and shout at that news. She might pat me on the head and go, oh, that's nice for you, dear, you know, but it's not, it's not what she, it would not cause her to change her perspective on the world. So that is what catalyzed me into 16 years of, of wrestling in Genesis and Genesis, because that's where we see the clearest picture of Shalom, the biblical concept of Shalom and Shalom is simply what the kingdom of God smells like. It's what it looks like, and it's what the kingdom requires of its citizens. Truth-telling is central to that. Reciprocity is central to that. Justice is central to that. Grace is central to that. And so that's the character of the kingdom of God that actually has potential to change the entire world if we followed it. Is Christianity in the U.S. colorblind? No, I think that we can see it is in theory, but in practice, it absolutely is not. Um, Martin Luther King Jr. said that uh, Sunday morning is the most segregated hour. The 11 o'clock hour on Sunday morning is the most segregated hour in America. Um, And it is true. That is the point. That is the time when we all go back to our tribal groups and we have our own worship, even though we are all Christian. And so that has not changed. It is still the same. And it's, it's as true in the mainline church, the Catholic church, the Orthodox church, and the evangelical church as it is anywhere else. And so we have some work to do. Lisa, you've made references to, you know, great, great grandparents. But what about the current generation, the current family around you? Within my family, even right now, my brothers and sisters um, who could be are people of faith or not, they're all people who are striving to understand more of God and finding spirituality today. I just think that so much of the church has disappointed the current generation. And so people are beginning to seek their spirituality outside of church walls. And I, I think that's a shame because I think we do have the answers, but I think we have, we've lacked the courage to live according to them. Lisa Sharon Harper, thank you for joining us on The Leap of Faith. Thank you so much. It's an honor. 
Finally this evening, I'm joined from Italy by biographer of Pope Francis, Austin Ivory. Austin is in Rome attending the Synod of Bishops for the Amazon, which continues until the 27th of October. Austin, can I start by asking you, why did Pope Francis call the Synod? He called the Synod because the Amazon region uh, is a very special place where there are a very large number of indigenous people who live in very remote areas and they are facing a massive crisis every day. Their environment, their ecology, the natural world around them is being exploited uh, and uh, ruined by all kinds of threats and their lives therefore are, are under threat. And the church in ministering to them, in accompanying them, in walking with them, faces massive challenges, logistical challenges and all kinds of other challenges. So for that reason, he's called together what is actually the first gathering of bishops ever to come from a particular territory. So there have been synods before on like whole continents and nations, but never before a territory. So this is a territory of Amazonia, which actually includes, uh, which ha has nine nations, because Amazonia is an area which, which is mainly in Brazil, but also covers uh, eight other nations. So the bishops from that area alone are the ones here in, in Rome, and therefore it's a kind of a new kind of gathering. And I I think rather fascinating for that reason. Now you have an extra insight which you should share with our listeners as a biographer of Pope Francis and, and I'm thinking of your book The Great Reformer and One to Come The Wounded Shepherd which we'll chat about in a moment but I'm, another thing that people may observe about Pope Francis is that he's no difficulty in creating tension in, in the church <laughs> and particularly among his bishops and I'm curious about the tension that he's using this one for because at one stage you know the, Rome is very central in its activities and what it does this is a peripheral activity and there was one thing that has come to the surface from this particular synod, which is the concept of married priests. And it's, it's almost stolen the, the limelight from the, the main story. Yeah, I mean, there was always going to be a danger with this uh, synod that it was going to be seen uh, as effectively a debate about whether to have married priests or not. And that's actually a distortion of what it is because there isn't really a discussion about whether or whether or not to end what's traditionally known as celibacy for priests. That's the tradition in the Western Church that priests not be married, which has been the general law since the 11th century in the Church. In fact, it's not that kind of a discussion. What it is is the church gathers to talk about the problems of the Amazon and how the church needs to change to be better able to accompany the people of the Amazon. Now, one of the things that the people of the Amazon said over and over and over and over again is two things. We need the church here 24-7. We, they call this moving from a pastoral of visitation to a pastoral of presence, to use kind of churchy language. Mm. What it means is, at the moment, the way things are structured, uh, of course, Catholics live, uh, you know, the, the Amazonian peoples who are Catholic live with, they have catechists, they have people who, you know, arrange ceremonies and all the rest of it and who assist the community. But when it comes to the Eucharist, which is, after all, the center of, in many ways, of Catholic life, and the other sacraments like confession, and so on. They're dependent on a priest coming from the outside. Now, given the logistical challenges of the Amazon, and given the massive area that, uh, that we're talking about, I mean, one bishop uh, spoke about he has an area, his diocese is effectively the size of half of Italy, and I think he has something like 15 priests for that area. So you can imagine many communities will only get the sacraments possibly once a year. Now, what does that mean? That means that um, effectively they're not living kind of as Catholics, and they're very dependent on the priest coming in, often to make decisions and so on. So the big question here is, how can the church, you know, people are saying we want the church here 24-7 uh, and we want the church to stand up for us. That's the other big message. And, and 
defend us against all these threats against us. Well, how can the church do that when it's, you know, passing through in that way? So the big discussion here is, well, okay, do we have a different kind of a priesthood alongside the celibate priesthood? We're not talking about banning celibate priests in any way. We're talking about, is it possible to have another kind of a priest who is effectively an elder? So rather than a young man who you send away to seminary, this is somebody who's already in the community, who's an older person, who's respected by the community, who's probably married and got children and has, a, you know, a livelihood, and you give him, you ordain him, and he is a fully, fully a priest, but he's a priest only for that place. So it's a different model of priesthood, very similar, in fact, to the early church. And in fact, many of the people here, uh, for the priests and, uh, and the bishops from the Amazon, say actually the communities of the Amazonia are a lot like the early church. Yeah, it's how people used to kind of live, and that's how priests were chosen. And of course, priests in the early church were married. So that's the that's the real question here: is in order to enable the church to be fully present in Amazonia, in order to evangelize. The, the zone, do we need to have a different kind of priesthood? It's a fascinating discussion. But of course you're talking about an organisation that has a central pro- presence in Rome and that if you set a precedent in one region that there would be an expectation that would go over. How, how are they squaring away the idea that this is a regionalised decision? Well, the great thing about the Catholic Church is that we have universal norms and principles, and then we have lots of exceptions. <laughs> I mean, that is how, effectively, I mean, it is the flexibility of Catholicism that allows it to survive. Now, you know, over the Irish Sea, in my country, England, we have a lot of married priests who are former Anglicans. I've been to Mass in England, where the priest is celebrating at the altar and his wife and children are sitting in the pew with me, right? So, you know, actually, it's quite normal in the Ukraine, in what are known as the Eastern Churches. There are seven, 19 different... Well, called rites in the Catholic Church, 17 of which have some form of married priesthood. So so there are plenty of exceptions already. In that sense, we're talking here about a discipline, a law that can be changed for a purpose. We're not talking about some sacred dogma or doctrine. Now, that doesn't mean to say that there aren't plenty of conservative people, in other words, people who fear change, who are looking at this synod and saying exactly what you're saying. Oh, my God, you know, we, do the, we allow this for Amazonia. Next thing, it'll be Ireland and France and all the rest of it. To which the answer is, well, maybe. But the point is that everybody has to make their own case. You see, what the Pope has done is he said, what's under discussion in Amazonia isn't a discussion about celibacy of priests. What's under discussion is what is right for the people in that place. It's a very different model of church governance. We're talking about careful consultation of people of God, listening, bishops gathering, discerning, and then maybe making proposals. All right, let's explore this just a little bit further because your your last book, The Great Reformer, uh, your next one coming out in November 5th this year, The Wounded Shepherd, Pope Francis and His Struggle to Convert the Catholic Church. Go back to the first one. Is he still the great reformer? Is there anything between this book and, 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 and the next one about the Reformation? <laughs> I, I'm, I'm still uh, proud of the title, The Great Reform. I think it captures something very, very important about Francis, which is that he, his whole life, he's been a reformer. He's been seeking to call the church uh, back to its tr- true mission, uh, that to put Christ at the centre and to detach itself from power, from the idea that the institution should come before anything else. Uh, so in that sense, he's a great reformer, and he absolutely has, over the last six years, carried out that reform to a remarkable degree. And in the second book, the book that's coming out now in November the 5th, called Wounded Shepherd, I examine those ch- that change to which he has called the church, and to some extent weighed up you know, the resistance to it and to what extent he succeeded. The title is very different, though, and it the title is different because I've changed my understanding of his role, which he has, by the way, <laughs> in my meetings with him, you know, he's helped me to understand 
that he's not the great architect of change himself. What He's more like a, this is my metaphor, not his, he's more like a spiritual director. Now, you know, some of you listening may or may not know what a kind of spiritual retreat is, but in the, in the Jesuit tradition to which the Pope belongs, you would go on a week or a month's silent retreat with a spiritual director in which you would pray and you would meet with your spiritual director each day. Now, you undergo a conversion or a change as a result of that retreat as you get to know God. The spiritual director is a very important person. He accompanies you, creates the space for you to change, points out the obstacles and the temptations that may make it difficult for you to, to, to change, but is not the, actually the, the author of that change. The author of the change is God or the Holy Spirit. So in that sense, uh, he, he, I've come to see his role as a different one. So Wounded Shepherd reflects the fact that, that you know, he's a person of wounds. In other words, he's, he's, he's criticized, he's attacked. You know, he's not a, a, a superman. He's incredibly humble and gracious as I know from uh, meeting him he had has he admits regularly that he makes mistakes I mean he's the first Pope who's effectively declared papal fallibility by saying look I got this wrong um, and so there's a humility there that I th- that I'm trying to bring out in that in that second title I'm immediately piqued by the idea that you as a biographer getting to have meetings with Pope Francis but at the same time maybe possibly being in receipt of some spiritual direction what has it done to your faith <laughs> well, I, I, I have uh, received spiritual direction separately from Pope Francis. I, I, I can't say he's my spiritual director, which I would love to say. But I have, I have to say, in answer to your question, that I have been changed by following Francis all these years. He has, uh, he has changed me. I, have cha- I felt myself change and grow, almost as if actually he is a kind of a spiritual director. You know, I've learned a phenomenal amount for him, uh, from him. And I've in many ways come to you know, see the world to some extent through his eyes and through the church. So I, I've developed a kind of an empathy or an understanding with him, uh, which you know I regard as really a great privilege. Some people who are very critical of the Pope might say I'm a little bit, I, I've lost my critical Your distance, objectivity, your distance. My objectivity, and I'll, I'll, I'll happily sign up to that. I'm not, I don't think I'm in this, either of my books, I'm standing outside this papacy with a kind of scorecard and, and, and uh, saying what's good and what's bad. I don't see that as my role. My role as a writer is to get under his skin to explain him to the world. Austin Arbery, thank you for joining us on The Leap of Faith. It's been great to be with you. Thanks so much. Before we leave you this evening, a brief mention that this Sunday morning on RTE One Television and on RTE Radio One Extra at 11, there'll be coverage from Rome as Pope Francis celebrates Mass in St. Peter's Square to recognise the sainthood of Blessed Cardinal John Henry Newman, the founder of UCD. From our broadcast coordinator, Gerald Holland, producer Sheila O'Callaghan and me, Michael Cummins, good night. <laughs>